Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the conflict in Syria. And Richard, since you and I have last spoke, President Trump, in reaction to the use of chemical weapons by the Assad regime in Syria, hit that country with 59 Tomahawk missiles. Um, shortly thereafter, we also saw the use of the so-called Moab, the mother of all bombs because of its extraordinary power against uh, ISIS targets in Afghanistan. These are the first real large-scale uses of military force in the Trump administration, and you've got some people saying that it's the president coming into his own as commander-in-chief, and you've got others saying that he's demonstrating a, a kind of recklessness on the world stage. Where does Richard Epstein come down? Well, it's too early to make a final judgment, but I think the way I would rephrase the question is quite simply this. Who is it that has the ear of the president in making these kinds of decisions? The most radical transformation that has taken thus far, take place thus far in the administration, has been sacking Steve Bannon from the National Security Council, so that it's quite clear that the chief military advisors are two of the ablest generals that this country has seen in a very long time. Uh, those are General Mattis and General McMaster. And given the strength of these two particular men, my guess is that what happened here is that this thing was well scripted, well thought out, and well planned before the response. That is, one of the things that McMaster has always stressed in his writing is that you don't want to have extemporaneous bull sessions in order to figure out what to do with the use of national force uh, when you're faced with serious opposition. You have to get your ducks in a line and you have to have a plan in advance. So my guess is that they thought that they would be tested in some way, that Syria would decide to use chemical weapons, that the Russians would probably back them in some perverse sense, so that they had to have made up their minds about this contingency before it happened. And then the question is, once you do that, how do you start to respond? And I take the following comfort. There's some people who say uh, that he didn't do enough. People like Max Boot said they got the airport running again the next day. What's the big deal? Then people on the other side, like my friend Steve Chapman, saying, oh my God, we're going to get ourselves into a quagmire. We'll never get out of it. There was a piece on the Heritage Foundation site which also used the word quagmire. So it's quite clear that the political lines are somewhat divided. And yet, oddly enough, Nancy Pelosi and uh, Chuck Schumer essentially endorsed this particular measure for reasons that make, I think, perfectly good sense. You just cannot allow the carnage to continue in the uh, Middle East and in Syria, and you have to make some show of force. So what's going to happen next? Nobody knows. The way in which this thing, I think, was organized is this was tit. What you did and what we did was tat. The next move is up to you. And I think the welcome feature about this is it adds a certain degree of uncertainty to all the calculations that will be made in Syria. Uh, these will influence the Russians. They will influence what is going to happen in Iraq. They'll influence what happens in Iran. They may even go as far to dealing with what happens in the South China Sea or in North Korea. Uh, so I think the fact that the president has decided to put force back in play was the correct move. Whether he could handle this is something which we don't know, but he does have the A-team that's working for him, and I have a lot of confidence in those guys, and so therefore at this particular point, I'm a supporter of the president, not a detractor. Richard, the Trump administration, though it has not been lockstep in messaging this point, has been taking the position that Assad should not remain in power in Syria, but 
that they're not actively seeking regime change now. Rather, they're focusing on getting rid of ISIS in Syria first. Does that strike you as a plausible order of operations? Well, I think so. I mean, uh, Assad is a mass murderer, uh, but ISIS is a bigger mass murderer. And one of the things that President Obama completely misunderstood about ISIS was its organizational differences from al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda was essentially a fugitive organization which popped up from hiding places and launched various kinds of terrorist attacks, some of them quite devastating. But ISIS has territorial ambitions and sets itself up as though it's a government with the power to regulate and the power to tax and the power to extract natural resources like oil and gas and to sell these fungible products into the world. So ISIS, you can hind, ISIS is much harder to hound than it is to go after al-Qaeda. And so what you have to do is to be much more systematic about it. And my own view is that the great mistake of the Obama administration was to away the advantages that had been achieved by the Petraeus initiative in the last two years of the Bush administration. So now what we have to do is to try to gain back the control of places places like Moselle, which had been firmly within a Western control beforehand. And going after ISIS first is probably the better thing. Uh, but what happens is you have no idea what's going to happen by either the Russians or by the Syrians. So I just hope that the contingency plans that I think were in place to deal with the uh, chemical weapons are also in place because it may well be necessary to pivot rapidly based on a set of contingencies that I as an outsider don't understand. And I do want to say one thing about being an outsider. I'm very reluctant to consider people whom I think are using the right framework and are acting in good faith and who may make mistakes. I'm not at all reluctant to criticize those people whom I think are using the wrong framework so they can never make the right decision. And Obama's decision to essentially cede the use of force and to ban it from a practical consideration in these things was, I thought, a terrible structural mistake. And so when you're dealing with these two guys now who are advising the president, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt until they show that they've really messed up. And frankly, I don't think that's going to happen. Let me have you parry with a couple of the criticisms that you mentioned earlier of, of this strike. The first being the line of argument that Donald Trump ran on what he termed an America first foreign policy, which to the extent that it was articulated was understood to mean that American foreign policy would tend towards non-intervention unless there was a direct threat to American national security. And there are a lot of people who signed up for that who may be asking – in fact, some of them are asking uh, – what national security interest was at stake here? No direct implications for the security of the American homeland. Chemical weapons, it's a tragedy. A lot of them will admit. But what vital national security risk to the United States was at play here? How do you respond to that line of criticism? I think that it would be a mistake to insist that only there has to be at least a vital national interest in the short term in order to move in. If you take that particular line, well, this chemical attack is not going to do that. Some other outrage is not going to do that. Or wrecking the system inside, Iraq is not going to do that. So there's no vital national interest on this view, even though 400,000 Syrians have been killed, 11 million have been displaced. There are massive immigration problems which have percolated all the way through the Europe European Union and led to destabilization there in part with respect to Brexit and so forth. I think in effect that if you take that particular view, you will always find a reason to turn a blind eye in a particular case, ignoring the cumulative impact of all of these particular situations. The second point I would say is I think that you could have made the same argument in World War II. After all, as Mr. Lindbergh said, so you're murdering six million Jews, so you're taking over all sorts of Western Europe, so you're having a blitz against the um, 
from Great the British and up against London. What direct harm is there to the United States protected by an ocean? And thank God we did not follow that particular view, and I don't think that we ought to follow it here. It is extremely difficult as a matter of political and moral and legal theory to figure out when you ought to intervene in order to protect somebody who's innocent. There's no obligation to go in and there's no obligation to stay out, so you have to really think it hard and through. And I think, in effect, that the way in which we let the system slip between 2009 and 2016 uh, the Obama years was a national tragedy. And I think that the president is right to say that we have a lower threshold. We're going to get involved there. And he pivots. So what has happened? Well, it's clear that we've pivoted here. It's also clear that we've pivoted with respect to the Russians. One of the good features about what happened in this particular case is that nobody now is going to be under an illusion that if we make nice to Mr. Putin, he will make nice to us. I think that everybody inside the administration understands that the man is a dangerous scoundrel and will treat him as such. This is a huge advance over everything that's there. I also think it means that the president now can turn to NATO and say, you have to do more. And he's pivoted there. Uh, The statements that he made that NATO is not important for Western security or that it's obsolete were juvenile statements. My view is that the man changes his opinion on this and listens to sensible advice. Uh, You can castigate him if you want for the past thing, but you've got to praise him for making the right decisions today. As far as I can see, the danger with Trump doesn't come from his recent pivots in all of these particular frontiers. That includes China and North Korea. The issue is he being mercurial so that he'll switch again, or has he actually learned the lesson uh, that you cannot align yourself with people like Steve Bannon and hope to be able to survive? The two great dangers or real disappointments in the in the Trump administration were first that dreadful inaugural speech with all the America First rhetoric, which came out exactly the wrong way, and then that madcap immigration order, uh, which created massive destruction towards the end of um, January. And if he's gone away from those things, I think what we should do is to commend him for the change. I'm not calling for his resignation today, believe me, and hope that, just as, as an aside, and hope that he continues this. I mean, I regard dealing with the Trump administration as a strictly a la carte business. That is, you take each particular proposal and you have to look at it. So he has another asinine proposal to try to increase people to buy and hire American. That's the kind of chauvinism that we don't need. And I basically think that I can praise him on the things that he's right and continue to condemn him on those where I think he's wrong. So let me turn you then to the line of criticism that cuts the other way on the serious strikes, Richard, which is the idea that this is just sort of a flashback to the Clinton era of these pinprick strikes, largely symbolic but no real lasting value. And there were these reports, which you mentioned earlier, that the Syrians were using the same air base that got struck again within about 24 hours. And people have said you know, even if it's narrowly effective in deterring the use of chemical weapons, the vast number of bodies that have been piling up in Syria have met their device through more conventional means. So in terms of actually putting an end to the slaughter there, you're not doing much. How do you respond to that argument? Well, I agree with it and think it's an argument for even a more proactive campaign than the one that the president has just engaged in. I think the great difficulty that the president has at this particular point is he has to reverse course from everything that went on before. I regarded Obama's public statements as being defeatist and misguided, and I think what he did was actually persuade the public at large that this form of intervention was foolhardy and unwise, and so you turn popular opinion against it. Now you've got a president who, to put it mildly, 
is kind of controversial, and he has to try to switch things back in the other direction. I think it's very hard to do so. So he's playing a two-sided game. He's trying to ramp up the military stuff, and he has to bring the populace along with him. And my own guess is that the way in which you try to make this strategy work is to identify certain kinds of events that are so outrageous that they would justify an escalation in the use of force. One of the problems I think that Obama had is when he was considering the use of force back in 2013, the only two plans he had on the table was to let the Russians take these uh, chemical weapons, which they could then return anytime they want to deliver other ones, or simply bomb the daylights out of Syria so there was nothing left to the Syrian Air Force. Um, there's got to be something in between, and it was the lack of professional advice on how to deal with the 2013 situation that let the president into um, a real danger. The point that I made at the end of my Hoover column I thought is kind of telling. It was in January 2013 that Barack Obama sacked Jim Mattis, as head of Central Command, which oversees the Middle East, and it was Donald Trump who hired him as his Secretary of Defense. Who's the smarter guy? No question on this one. Score one for Donald, score zero for Mr. Barack Obama. <laughs> Last thing that I'll put to you. Uh, what about the legal argument? You've had certain members of Congress, Senator Tim Kaine from Virginia, who of course was the Democrats' vice presidential nominee last year, uh, Rand Paul, the libertarian-minded senator from Kentucky. Uh, they've been arguing that the president needed congressional authorization before launching these strikes. Donald Trump himself as a private citizen even indicated on Twitter that he thought Barack Obama needed to go to Congress first when it looked like he might attack Syria. So was – President Trump operating within the scope of his legitimate constitutional powers when he made this call. There is a huge ambiguity with respect to this question, and you see both kinds of answers. I think Harold Coe actually came out in support of the president because he was involved in the Libya situation. People like Jack Goldsmith were much more cautious. Both of these are extremely learned people. So let me sort of give you my view of this. If you were trying to figure out what the constitutional structure requires, it turns out to be a very rigid structure, more suitable for the years 1789 to, say, 1900s then to the president. What you did is you had a formal process where Congress would declare war and then the president as commander-in-chief would execute it with appropriations from the Congress. Well, events moved too rapidly today. At the time of the founding, it was generally thought that the president did not need an authorization to declare war if somebody else declared war on us or if there was an emergency that immediately imperiled American life. Now what we do is we have a situation that doesn't come within that very narrow exception, but we certainly have a serious breach of international comedy and peace, and the president sort of responded. Customary practice, no doubt, has moved in favor of allowing greater presidential discretion subject to congressional ratification after the fact. The War Powers Act, which was vetoed by Nixon and became not an act, it was actually a resolution, uh, tried to get the president uh, to give a report to Congress and then had 60 days to act after which he needed authorization. No president has actually accepted that. But if you think about it, the War Powers Act is in fact a fundamental revision of the way in which the original constitutional scheme had worked because it allows ratification after the fact to substitute for uh, authorization before the fact. I think that's the direction in which we are moving, um, but it's ambiguous and it leaves me deeply uncomfortable because you know whenever you have a tension between text and practice, nobody can be confident to the right answer. I think the correct 
thing to do is what they sort of did with respect to the AUMF, the authorization for the use of military force. After the September 11th attack in 2001, that particular resolution doesn't cover this case. But John McCain, who I think is surprisingly sensible on most of these issues, sort of wants to have a kind of a generalized standby authority for dealing with these contingencies subject to oversight thereafter. That is to make the authorization today subject to revision tomorrow. And on balance, I think that's a good idea. Uh, they, this was floated around earlier, uh, but most of the things that were put forward were, I think, too weak to deal with the particular problem. You need to get fairly bold authorization and have fairly strong ex post sanctions. Not sure which way it's going to come out, but that I think is the correct path given the ambiguity and the tension between text on the one hand and custom on the other. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.